This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. Today you are going to get a front row seat into the incredible Springbok career of a World Cup and Tri-Nations winner, Albert van den Berg. Albert, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Hi Peter, thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. Looking forward to this. Now before we begin our conversation, let's take a look at this week's trivia question. Chester Williams scored four tries at the 1995 Rugby World Cup. Name the other Springbok to score four tries at that tournament. Now, if you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below. And we'll also find out if Albert knows the answer to that question, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Albert, I'd like to start in 1999 when you made your debut against Italy. Talk to me about how you were feeling ahead of that test match. Yeah, very excited. It was uh, uh, 99, um, first game against Italy. We played down in, in PE, Putierasmo Stadium. And uh, it was excitement for us in the sense of uh, we had a good team that was put together on that day. And, and we said, listen, let's go out and see what, what score we can put up against Italy. Uh, and, you know, end up winning with a big margin against Italy. So it was special for me. Uh, butterflies. But, you know, your first test is always the same as your last test. Uh, always butterflies representing your country is something special. Now, after that Italy series, we played a strange, peculiar one-off test match away from home in June against Wales uh, at the then-new Millennium Stadium. And then we also suffered a couple of heavy defeats in the Tri-Nations away from home. What was the atmosphere like in the Springbok camp at that stage? Yeah, that one-off test against uh, Wales was special. You know, it was the opening of the Millennium Stadium. Um, so they built this beautiful stadium and they played against uh, the Springboks. And for us going there, we knew it was going to be tough. You know, when, when there's always a, something special like opening up a stadium or a new venue, something going on, it, it was uh, it was going to be tough for us. Uh, Wales ended up winning that game. Um, and, and I think, you know, for the, the record books, it's something special for their side. You know, not always going to win. Um, I played in, in, in Japan. On a, I was coaching in Japan and Robbie Deans was the coach of Panasonic. And we ended up beating uh, Panasonic for the first time ever. And he said to me, every game that you win is one close to the next one you're going to lose. And, and it's the opposite for that. So you can't always win and you can't always lose. So the, the further you go, the opportunity is there to win and lose. And I think it was special for them, you know, for, for, for them to win on that day. So for us, after that, a couple of other games that we lost, um, but they're also in the process of building, you know, it's, it's building a team, a lot of youngsters together in the spring box. There were some senior guys there, but, um, we had a goal, you know, if you go and look at, uh, Jake Watts, uh, 2004 taking over 2007, he said, if we do all the things that, that he's asking us to do, we'll win the World Cup. And, and through that whole process, he had to try out combinations. So going through that whole process of losing some test matches, um, I think we even played Australia and we lost 49-0. Uh, playing in Australia. But at the end of the day, you know, when, when you go to the World Cup and you win the World Cup, you look back uh, and you see the reward from actually trials and errors that you made uh, during uh, that process of building up to the World Cup. Albert, let's move on then to the 1999 Rugby World Cup. I've had a couple of guys on the show that have told me that during the pool stages in Scotland, it was actually quite difficult for them in the sense that they didn't really feel that they were at a World Cup. And that changed once we moved to Paris for the quarterfinals. Would you go along with that? Yeah, so looking at that World Cup, you know, you know, playing that game, we moved all over, playing up in Europe. So the games just moved all over Europe and... It, it was special playing, um, you know, Scotland in the pool stages, and then for the we moved to play England in the quarterfinals, and um, 
the big thing for us in, in that game was that Nick Mallet during that week, he said, listen, do whatever you can do to win this test. And one of the things he focused on, Yanni De Beer with these drop goals. You know, so yeah, that whole week we were practicing, you know, once you get into that strike zone, is just setting out the ball, a couple of pick and goes, the ball will go to Yanni and he'll, he'll slot over the drop goal. So in training, he missed a couple and he got a couple. And eventually in, in the game when we played against England, I mean, he slotted five of them. You know, it was special for us. So that whole week's preparation, yes, it was quite different moving to a different country to go and play. But the focus was still on the rugby and, and, and the job to do. And, and that's what we ended up doing in that game. And I think any of us that watched that match, uh, the Yanni De Beer show, as it became known, uh, remember it very, very fondly. Um, Albert, I just want to go back into the pool stages. Uh, as you said, we had Scotland in the opening game, uh, and then we also had Uruguay and Spain, uh, two unusual opponents, especially Spain. Um, but in terms of the Uruguayans, I know that you featured in that match, uh, and something that was interesting to me is that even though we won, and I think the score was 39-3, if I'm not mistaken, uh, even even though we won by quite a large margin, it looked like it was quite a difficult match. Difficult for us to get going. Uh, what makes it so tough to combat a smaller opponent like Uruguay? You know, sometimes when you play these smaller teams, it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, the mindset's got to be you want to put those teams away. Um, and then you try special things in those games. And at the end of the day, you find yourself with just one pass that didn't go to hand or it's one pass that didn't happen. You know, we're supposed to pass because the opportunity is there for everyone to score. I was fortunate to score two tries in that game myself. Um, but but it's one of those games, you know, you know, you shouldn't lose this game, but also you don't put them away putting 70, 80 points up and actually building a bit of momentum into the next games is where you should go and actually stick to your structures, make sure that you do all the things that you're supposed to do. But you get those games when it, it just opens up in the sense of everyone is trying that hallelujah pass and it doesn't go to hand and then you get frustrated a little bit. And, and you must understand from those teams, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big moment for them as well playing against one of the top tier teams. And I don't say they do play negative, but every moment they get to tackle you off the ball or to spoil something, that, that is big moments for them in the game. You know, they know they're going to lose the game, but to keep the score low, that, that's one of, one of their aims. How much of a sucker punch was it to lose that semi-final against the Aussies in extra time? It was terrible. Eh? You know, that game, I mean, we end up getting a penalty and, and the scores was level and going into the extra time. I mean, Rossi spoke about it, you know, that drop goal from Stephen Larkin when it just touched his finger and sort of went over the pole. So the moments were there. Um, we could have won that game, you know, looking at the video afterwards and you see these opportunities we had. But, uh, you know, y- you can't go back and change things. Uh, but it wasn't a nice feeling. You know, we, we bowled it up 95 World-, World Cup winners, 99 is the next one. I think we had good preparation going into that tournament. Uh, Nick Mallet planned everything to the T. Um, you know, you-, you don't plan for stopping a drop goal uh, and ended up... Stephen Larkin getting that. And it wasn't a good feeling for us. You know, we went through, I think then we played New Zealand in the third and fourth uh, playoff and, and we ended up beating New Zealand in that game. You know, it, it's, it's left a bad taste in the mouth, but uh, yeah, we have to move on. At least we got a bronze medal, uh, but as you say, we have to move on. And then into 2000, uh, I know that the results were actually quite mixed. A uh, couple of big defeats, 
couple of really, really good victories. And speaking of the victories, you were involved in a memorable win over the All Blacks at Ellis Park in 2000. Talk to me about that occasion. Yeah, that was special. You know, it's always special when the, the All Blacks come and play uh, the Springboks in South Africa. And it seems like, you know, Ellis Park uh, in, in Johannesburg is one of the stadiums where that's our go-to place. We want to play the, the All Blacks and make sure that we beat them. Um Everyone talks about it from from a young age. When you play for the Springboks, you want to play against New Zealand, and that's special. And, and then beating them in South Africa, uh, sold out crowd, everyone going crazy. Yeah, that was special for me. It's one of those things that uh, uh, if you can play Test rugby and you can beat New Zealand, then then you've achieved something. Albert, you pretty much played everywhere in the world in terms of international rugby. How would you say Ellis Park compares to some of the other venues? I think Ellis Park for me. It's, it's a nice field. It's one of the best fields that you can play on. Uh, I think the ground staff really look after the field there nicely and, and make sure it's, you know, it's good running rugby that you can play on that field. Yeah. We don't get weather that, you know, the, the field gets soggy and, and it's wet. So it's a nice running rugby type of field. Um, the atmosphere is just great. That stadium, uh, if you go back to the 95 World Cup with, with the Boeing flying over the stadium and, and the people singing. So it's an unbelievable feeling you get playing at Dallas Park. Uh, it doesn't take anything away from the other stadiums in South Africa, um, Durban, Cape Town and, and Pretoria. But, uh, you know, playing at Alice Park, we know it's altitude. It's one of the things that that's to our benefit because uh, as South Africans, we prepare a lot here in altitude playing Joburg and, and Pretoria. So we know when those New Zealanders come or the overseas teams come from the coast, you know, they, they, their lungs going to burn the first 20 minutes and then we've got the upper hand in that. So, yeah, it's always special for us playing there. Absolutely. So, Albert, uh, after that 2000 Tri-Nations, Harry Fulhoun replaced Nick Mallett. In your opinion, how did you experience the differences between the two coaches? Yeah, my opinion about it was that Harry Fulhoun is, is a great team manager. You know, he employed the right coaches. Um, he did a bit of coaching, but his biggest thing was like, I, I will never forget this. He, he got his leather jackets and RM William boots and he says, if you're a million dollar team, you have to look like a million dollar team. So he, I think his off the field management, management was unbelievable. You know, Harry Fulhoun, he's got the vision. He knows what he wants. He got the right coaches in. He built a group and it's almost like soccer for me. You know, we've got managers and they employ the right coaches. That's the way I see Harry Fulhoun. You know, he was this, this head coach, but more in a manager role, making sure that he gets all the right coaches and the players and, and everything works together for a common goal. Um, where the previous coaches, I had Nick Mallet and then the ones afterwards, they coaches, you know, that the, they look after the team, but they're not so much off the field involvement where Harry was very concerned about, you know, away from the field, you still have to look like a million dollar team and, and, and he made sure that we're very professional off the field as well. So, speaking of the Harry Fulhoun era, the first test match was actually against Argentina in Buenos Aires. And I know that you guys were instructed not to kick the ball. And uh, I had Oli LaRue on the show uh, a while back. And he told me that it was probably with about 10 minutes to go. The instruction came from Harry that you guys should actually go ahead and kick. And he felt that at that moment, Harry lost the change room. I'm interested to know if you felt the same way. I, I didn't felt felt the same way in... in the fact that he lost the change room. For me, it was a case of, I think Harry's idea was great. You know, we want to play running rugby. We wanted to surprise teams. Another coach that I played under Dick, Dick Mears is the same. You know, he says, why do you want to kick if you can run with the ball? So we had this game plan of, of not kicking against Argentina. And half time, we were quite comfortably up. I think the score was, I can't remember, 30 points to, let's say, 12, something like that. But 
Then the second half, obviously trying to run everything, they actually put us under a lot of pressure, uh, getting us in our own 22, actually pinning us there. So then you can't run. There's times that you have to keep. But we stuck to the game plan that it, that it tried. And I think the benefit of that would have been that if you keep on doing that, you become Glasgow Warriors in the URC is exactly the same now. You know, they're a team from the kickoff. Um, you can kick off towards them and they can run the ball. So we did the same against Benetton this year in the UFC. We, we received the kickoff and we ran out and scored. So, so the game plan there was not to kick and, and we did that. But unfortunately, you know, it takes a lot of uh, conditioning. You have to train that way a lot to be able to do that consistently. And, and we actually got to a point where we were actually a little bit more fatigued, even though the bench came on. Uh, made a bit of a difference, but we didn't have 15 guys on the field that can still run out of our 22. And then uh, the Messi's came on this and kick because the scores were getting very close to each other. So so we had to gain, and that's one of the easiest ways to gain uh, meters in the field is to kick the ball down the field rather than to run it. But then, uh, yeah, we changed that and we ended up winning that game by three or four points, I think. So it was very tough. Uh, but definitely not losing the change room. I think it was more something that, you know, it was a gamble and, and, and it's sort of almost paid off. But, you know, it can't be 100% predicted that it's going to pay off. And so we got away with that one. Albert, into 2001 then, and we actually had some decent results. So we beat the Wallabies, who, of course, were the world champions at the time. We drew against them away from home. Uh, we lost a test match to the All Blacks at Newlands, which I personally believe we should have won even though obviously we didn't. Um, but that said, in your opinion, how close were the Springboks in terms of the quality of the side to the Aussies and the Kiwis at that stage? Yeah, we were close. You know, in 2001, I think if I go back to our local rugby, um, you know, we played in, in the Super Rugby uh, final in 2001. I think we lost to the Brumbies um, under, under the Australia. Um, so... Team selection was quite easily, fairly easy with the teams, you know, from the Bulls and the Sharks, uh, Stormers and the Lions. So we, we had very good competition amongst ourselves and, and the teams that we selected or was selected in those days was uh, quite competitive. Uh, I think we ended up beating uh, Australia 10-9 uh, down in Cape Town when we beat them. So um, Tri-Nation is always a big competition. You know, you play two games at home and two away and and it's always tough when you go and play Australia and New Zealand there. So you have to win your own game. So losing that game against New Zealand was it wasn't easy. It wasn't nice for us, but uh, um, it's one of those things. We're very competitive, starting to build a team again. You know, 99 World Cup passed, and then you're working towards 2003, and uh, you get these test games that that comes up. Um, that's going to be very competitive for us. So it was a nice group of players coming through. Uh, it was almost an era of um, 99 has gone. And 2000s is building into the next one. So that those games over 2000, 2001 was more, you know, building something for 2003 to come. Let's stay in 2001, Albert. So we had an unusual test match against the United States of America at the end of the year in Houston. Talk to me about that experience. Yeah, that was a first time ever going to America. So we arrived there in Houston and, and that whole week building up. Um, I, I know the city was we couldn't believe the temperature, the weather there. It was like almost like 40 degrees. And we arrived at the hotel and you go outside and you walk around and you say, hey, there's no one here. You know, it seems like everyone's left the country. Um, just to find out later that at the end of the day, everyone is under tunnels. You know, they've got air-conditioned tunnels and, and they move around underneath. And then we ended up visiting the um, universities there. And, and it was amazing to see 
their local teams, how far they develop with the equipment, um, how they're training the, the athletes that's coming through there. So we went to train at this different venues and universities and we ended up playing against America, which was amazing for us. I think it, we, we won with a big score, 64 or something. Uh, the first half a little bit tough because, uh, they gave everything they had. Um, and then to see the support that was there for, for the Americans and the Springboks there, a lot of South Africans living there obviously, um, came out to support us in, in, in that test. But it was amazing to see how people supported in, in Houston. So, uh, whenever we go and play overseas, you know, you get to, to see different parts of the world and, and to be in America, a massive country, Houston, uh, yeah, it was, it was great for us, great experience. And then you only played a test match for the Springboks again in 2004. What happened? Good question. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think, um, you know, from there, Rolf Strali took over. Uh, he became the Springbok coach. He had a different vision and um, he was at that stage before becoming the Springbok coach. He was actually our coach at the Sharks. Um, he worked with us. Um, I suppose it was difficult for him to sort of just pick a lot of Sharks players. Um, you know, he became the national coach and he had all these camps and we were part of those camps. But ultimately, when it came down to the numbers, the, the final squad that he had selected wasn't as many Sharks in that squad as there used to be the previous years. Uh, whether it was by choice or, you know, lack of form, um, he had to select a team that he believed that he can take to the World Cup. And, um, you know, 2003, he took over there and he had to bolt only two years to bolt into the next World Cup. So the guys that he selected was the ones that he thought that he's going to take and, and go all the way. Um, so, yeah, I missed out on those two years of, of playing international rugby. But, you know, it gave the body a good break because I ended up playing till the age of 40. So... Yeah, quite a different. Not bad at all then. Uh, so Jake was actually the one who brought you back in 2004. Uh, I know that you only played the, the one Tri-Nations Test match in Christchurch, but be that as it may, that meant that you helped the team win the Tri-Nations that year. Talk to me about that experience. Yeah, I received a phone call from Jake um, in 2004 and he said to me, are you still keen on playing rugby, you know, international rugby? And I said, Jake, always, you know, I think every, everyone wants to play there uh, as as long as they can. And I said to him and he said, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity and I want you to take it. And yeah, it started um, slowly. I think I was flying, flown over to, to New Zealand to go and play and I played in the test match there against New Zealand. We should have won that game. We ended up losing that game in the last minute. I think Joe Rokokoko scored in the corner and uh, yeah, it was disappointed for us. But that was the whole process of starting this whole, you know, campaign towards 2007 with Jake. So you, you got all the guys in and gave opportunities to to ex-players that have played uh, stream of rugby before and um, we all bought into his game plan and, and said listen we'll follow you and, and make sure that we do whatever we can do and he said said to us just do what's needed to do to win the test match and, and you know and go all the way to the world cup and, and win the final so yeah that was a uh, another opportunity for me again in, in 2004 to be part of the stream box and, and special you know there was good players in that in that group that came after that 2003, I think they lost in the quarters. And some of those guys came out and said, listen, you know, we, we want to go to the World Cup and, and but start early building a team and, and, and get to the World Cup. I asked you earlier to compare Nick Mallett and Harry Phil Yoon. Now I'd like to ask you about your take on Jake White as a coach. Yeah, I, I rate Jake. I think Jake's knowledge of the game is, is unbelievable. You know, he's, he's got a game plan. He knows the way he wants to play. Um, he demands a lot from his players. Um, it's one of those things where 
sometimes you know the coach needs the players to buy into his game plan and and the vision that he has. And if you do that, I think you're already ninety percent there. Bounce of the ball is always going to be undetermined. You know, at the end of the day, you can try something; it doesn't work. But as long as there's a common goal and and, some, and everyone buying into this goal and, and know where we're going to go, it, it's good. Jake, I really enjoyed playing underneath Jake because he was also straight and honest and said, listen, Albert, you're going to play for me. You're an impact player. I want you to come off the bench and make a difference. I knew why I stand with, with the team and, and with Jake. And it was easy. You know, it was it was straightforward. This is what I want you to do. And this is what I want you to deliver. And uh, for Jake, his honesty at, at the World Cup during those four years, being involved with him it was unbelievable. It, it's like I said, it's you know you know we stood with him and and you can just go with the team and, and there's a vision and, and it was to win the World Cup in 2007. Now, even though we didn't win the Tri Nations in 2005, I personally actually think that we were better in 05 than 04. Uh, I'd like to hear if you might agree with that or not. Yeah, it's uh, it's not about disagreement. I think it was all about the, the plan that we had. You know. Um, so if we were better, we played better rugby. So that was the second year being together with Jake, you know, and, and things came together and combinations that he tried. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't work. But it was all because of we had a plan and, and a vision where we're going. So the results, you mustn't look at the results. You must just look at the outcome of, you know, the, the performance on the field. So, yes, we, we had a couple of bad test matches. Um, uh, but most of them, we were building on to getting uh, experience and you know, for Jake, was the, the the more caps he could get behind the players and that experience playing together, uh, the better. Because especially when we went overseas, he said, you know, the World Cup's going to be away from South Africa. It's going to be in France, and um, you need to be able to win away from home and and get that experience. You can't always be safety at home. This is the way you want to play. Um, so yeah, he tried a few things. It, some of them worked, and some of them didn't work. But ultimately, the goal was there. So, Albert, you were at the 1999 Rugby World Cup and then again in 2007. The tournament had obviously grown and developed since then. What would you say were the differences that you noticed off the field between 1999 and 07? I think it's all the marketing, you know, the hype that goes with it. Um, 2007, we were based in France. Um, the little village, uh, they sort of adopted you, South African team, and everything was branded in that area for us. Being South African, uh, the field that we go to, all the banners is up there. So it's almost like a home away from home for us. Um, and, and I think that's the one thing every World Cup, they just get better and better about, you know, the marketing of it, the, the fact that they host the teams, even when they went 2019 to, to Japan, you know, I remember Machida was the, I, I coached a bit and played there, but Machida adopted South Africa as the, the sort of home team, you know, and you get those Japanese behind you. And it's the same thing that happened in France. You know, because you're in that area, the locals started supporting you as uh, as the Springbok. So they they creating that home away from home feeling, uh, and that's the one thing that I I do believe that as tournaments go on and get bigger and bigger, it's more a case of you know they see how they can do better the things better off the field as well. Rugby on the field will improve and and things will happen, but off the field is where a lot of the games are win and lost. Albert, in that 2007 Rugby World Cup, in the pool stage, we came up against Tonga. Uh, we won that match narrowly, and I think it's fair to say that it was too close for comfort. What was the problem that day? Yeah, it's um, if you ask what the problem was, the problem was that we, we just won narrowly. So it, it was one of those games, again, like, you know, we spoke about the 99 Uruguay game. Um, we tried things, things didn't work. Uh, we had to win that game. 
not that we were in a comfort zone. Um, there was a few guys that got opportunity to start in that test match. I was one of them, you know, starting that game. And then we had uh, Victor and all the other guys on the bench coming off, making sure that we've got those guys that, you know, coming. I think it was a case of, I wouldn't say we were overconfident, but, you know, you play Tonga, you should beat them. Uh, they actually played unbelievable rugby on that day. Opportunities they got, bounce of the ball, uh, favoured them and, and, it, it was it was very close twenty five twenty I think was the was the final score something like that um, so yeah it's it's not a, a thing that you can put your finger on and say this was the problem we just ended up playing and, and scramble and defence and, and managed to save that test uh, but it wasn't easy um, you know they again played out of their boots and, and, and put us under a lot of pressure uh, but if you look back at those games uh, sometimes you need those games to to mould the team. How disappointed were you not to be involved in the final? Yeah, a big disappointment, but uh, happy for the guys that have played there. I think, uh, you know, everyone would have been, liked to be part of that final uh, 23, you know, being on the field or, you know, just sitting on the bench in that game. But, I mean, the whole build-up to the World Cup uh, was, we were one squad. I mean, the PSPs that missed out, you know, he was one of the guys that stayed behind. We're still part of the team, you know, part of the group, even though they weren't there. Um, I think John de Villiers got injured early in that tournament. Uh, so he missed out. But having a squad of 33, ultimately, with, with the guys of injuries, whether you played or, or just being in, in, in the group, was, was unbelievable, you know, just to be part of that whole build-up into winning the World Cup. So would it be nice to be on the bench or, or starting in that game? But, uh, you know, the guys that were there was the best guys um, at that stage. And, and Jake selected a, a team that can win the World Cup. So, you know, just to be part of that was special. So with that in mind, what does it feel like when the referee blows the final whistle and you are a rugby world champion? It's surreal. You know, at the end of the day, it's like you celebrate and, and you're so happy and you've won this thing. It's, it's something that happens every four years. You know, it's not like you missed out and next year you're going to have another go. You have to wait four years again. So for us to win that World Cup final was unbelievable. I, I think it was it's my, most probably the only time I didn't sleep at all that whole night. You know, it was partying the whole night and everyone's drinking and going crazy about this World Cup. And we had all the guys afterwards in, in at the hotel getting together and celebrating. And yeah, unbelievable. You actually don't want to go to bed because you've just won this massive trophy and that happens every four years since the World Cup and it's a special moment for all of us and yeah it was surreal for me but, um, if you look back now and you look at all the work that's been put in and how difficult difficulty is actually is to win a World Cup you know you go through that quarterfinal semi-final final which is three big teams you have to play in, and you have to beat them uh, it's just unbelievable thing that uh, you know we've done it and we've done it a couple of times now as South Africa and it brings back so many happy memories as well, just for me, you know, as a as a fan and as a supporter and so on. Albert, um, that was pretty much then the end of your career. I know you played one more test match against Wales uh, at the end of that year. But in terms of your career, I think that you were, I think it's fair to say, you were a fan favorite and you were particularly well known, I think, for your mobility, your athleticism and even your pace, which was very unusual uh, for a tight forward. What do you think were your best attributes? Yeah, thanks for that compliment there. Um, you know, with my career, I, I really, my biggest thing was always to be the fittest. I, I believed if I was fit, I can play for 80 minutes. Um, I wasn't the strongest. Uh, speed wasn't my favor, uh, that I could run the whole game and, and I could sprint with the backs. I think I scored a couple of tries 
actually sprinting away from the backline players. But uh, yeah, for me, it was more about the entertainment. You know, uh, there was a, a time when we came through locks as athletic locks. They they referred to to us as being the athletic ones. You know, the more the mobile ones, um, and then you get your Bucky's Buertas, the big guys that can ball carry and and press it up and get gain line. But for me, it was more being the link between the backs and the forwards and and getting those opportunities. And sometimes you score a try and people say, yeah, how did you do that? And it's like, you know, just being at the right place at the right time and, and you get those opportunities. So I do believe rugby is, is all shapes and sizes. And, and, and I, I got a spot in the team where because I was fit and, and I could play for 80 minutes and a bit of speed and, you know, getting up in the air in the lineouts and it sort of, it favoured me. And for me, it was more... People don't see the hard work a lot, you know, all the donkey work that's been done. They see the, the, the things that happen on the outsides. And I think that's why uh, I got those opportunities and, and people loving it that, to see me running around and scoring tries. And um, so, yeah, it was it was special for me, you know, through my career. I, I was able to to do that. Thank the Lord for the, the talent that he gave me to be able to do that. Uh, and that to the age of 40 years old. So it was special. So who was your toughest opponent? For me, I'll definitely say um, if I have to think about the, the, the English locks, you know, uh, uh, Martin, um, who else is the um, John Eos. Uh, I mean, I, he was the, towards the end of his career when I started playing. You know, he was very skillful, even kicked for, for goal. Um, so Martin Johnson, I'll, I'll go back to toughest. You know, in those days, they were still, you could still rock the guys and, and spit on the guys and so when we played against England he, he, he was dirty um, dirty he got away with a lot of things but he was physical as well and and tough and in, in those days it was uh, uh, the rest weren't this trick or the ca- there weren't so many cameras on all the angles that you could see getting away with stuff so at the bottom of the rock he was he was quite tough um, yeah he was the I'll say Martin Johnson was the guy that was the toughest for me is there a particularly funny moment that you can share with us from your time with the Springboks? Oh, there's a lot of moments uh, that was funny, but not particular. Uh, I think the biggest thing for me was, uh, uh, you know, when you become a Springbok, you get initiated, you know, be part of the Springboks. And it's something that you don't really talk about. So there's, uh, there's moments there. There's a whole build up to that whole thing, becoming a Springbok and, you know, all the guys will sit in a circle and then you enter a room and you have to tell a joke or do something. And um, I'll, I'll just remember that I had to come in and uh, what I was told to do was uh, I'm I'm in war and I have to leopard crawl into the room. And then uh, Nick Mallet was the head coach sitting at the back there. And then I have to go all the way up and he mustn't see me and then jump up with the machine gun and I must shoot him. Uh, and, you know, you enter this room and, and you start leopard crawling and you go and you like, you go behind the chairs and, and, you know, the guys will chat and carry on. They sort of make if they can't see you because they've also been prepped at what you're going to do. And then jump up and you pull out the gun and you start shooting and Nick Miller says, what the fuck are you doing? You know, it's like you get this, but, but you're supposed to know about this, you know, you're supposed to laugh about this. And then like they chase you out of the room and it's like, unbelievable that even at that level you know the guys can actually bring it so down to being so comfortable and make it fun you know it's 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 a serious place but also a place where you can actually enjoy and have a bit of fun and that was for me it was uh, the introduction part of the 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 rugby team the world cup uh, not the world cup the springboks was 
was special that, you know, we're all human and we can still have a joke. And what are you up to these days? Yeah, I'm coaching at the moment. So when I retired in uh, Japan um, at the age of 40, <laughs> I thought, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's something special to play rugby and, and I want to give something back in, in coaching as well. And I started my coaching career and at the Sharks at the Academy and I was there for two years and then coached in Japan, came back, coached at the Greek was and I just finished with the Lions. I'm moving to Scarlet's now. So it's a big move for us, uh, busy packing everything and getting ready. So now I love my coaching. It's something that uh, I've learned from all the coaches before. If I start back with Andre Markgraf, Nick Mallet, Rudolf Strauli, you know, Jake, John Plumper, Dick Mia, I've got so many good coaches that have coached me. And I've taken from all those coaches, you know, take something from them and, and you can start implementing it and, and, and building your own sort of coaching style. Uh, I love the rugby. I love the sport. I want to give back. And uh, what I've learned from all those coaches, I can actually, you know, start molding myself into becoming one of the coaches that want to coach for years to come. And something that my viewers are not going to know, Albert, is that at the time of us recording this interview, you're actually not at your own house because you're busy packing up and everything is in a container and you're getting ready to move uh, to Wales. So I just want to say thank you very, very much uh, for, for being available today. It just uh, speaks volumes. No, it's a big pleasure. And thank you for, for this. Uh, it's always nice. I always say it's for the people out there. It's, it's nice to hear what, what everyone's doing during their playing days, after their playing days. Um, and for you guys, thank you for bringing it out and, and putting it out there. Uh, I say that, you know, we've got so many supporters and I don't always get the opportunity to listen to everything and all the stories and the funny things and the sad things. But with you guys, thank you for that as well. All right, Albert, just before I do let you go, we have to look at the trivia question again quickly. Chester Williams scored four tries at the 1995 Rugby World Cup Name the other Springbok to score four tries at that tournament. Do you know the answer, Albert? Yeah, it's, uh, it's so many years ago. I, I know Stefan de Blanc scored four tries um, when we started playing against Italy. If I have to think back now, maybe Gavin Johnson. I don't know. I, there, there was a game when he scored a lot of points. Maybe it's him. Okay, that's not a bad guess, actually, because Gavin was involved in the team. But the answer, believe it or not, is actually Adrian Richter. Oh, lovely. Good number eight. He scored two tries against Romania and then another two against Canada. So maybe if he had played more matches at the World Cup, he could have been the leading try scorer. Who knows? Uh, Albert, let me say again, uh, thank you very, very much for being available today. It really was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby. And hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Thank you very much and, and all the best to you and, and for all the viewers out there. Thank you for your support. Keep on. Last time on Front Row Rugby, I had 1998 Tri-Nations champion Peter Rousseau on the show. You can go and have a look at that video. It's appearing on your screen right now. Next time, I'll have 2004 Tri-Nations champion Brayton Pulser. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.